everybody is talking about decentralization, right? That is the term that people most associate, I would say, with the crypto space. We have to stop and think about what this term actually means since we're putting so much weight on it. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth at Enigma, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Angela Walsh. Angela is a professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law. Her research focuses primarily on money in the law, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, and financial stability. She's a self-described skeptic of blockchain technology, and she's considered one of the leading legal experts on many of the complexities being created by decentralized technologies. Angela's previously presented her work at Harvard Law School, Stanford University, the Federal Reserve, and the London School of Economics, among other fine institutions. On this episode, Angela talks about the difficulty in defining terms like decentralization and trustless, who makes the ultimate determination on whether something is decentralized, what are the weaknesses she sees in blockchain governance, and how, despite her overall skepticism, some of these new technologies might actually hold real promise. Angela may be skeptical of blockchains, but she's very good at framing the questions that we need to be asking if we want to scale decentralized systems and actually create the better future that we're aiming for. So I hope her questions and her perspectives are inspiring you to find the right answers. And without any further introduction, here is Angela Walsh. Angela, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Decentralize This. I am really happy that we could make this happen. Yes, we've been trying to for a while, so it's nice to finally get to speak. Absolutely. Well, you're you're very busy. You're you're writing, you're you're traveling, you're speaking. I, I try to keep up. I obviously can't. Um, but I've been really interested reading some of your recent work. Uh, maybe it's not so recent anymore, but um, I was hoping to specifically talk about um, your paper, Deconstructing Decentralization, to start. That's uh, This idea of defining decentralization comes up a ton on this podcast. Before, though, we get right into that, I start every episode the same way, just for our audience. Personally, professionally, who are you? Who is Angela Walsh? I am someone that people probably identify as a crypto skeptic and... Um, some people within the crypto space kind of disagree with everything that I say. Um, I Other p- parts of my life are being a law professor at St. Mary's uh, University School of Law in San Antonio, Texas. And um, I've been researching and writing about the crypto world uh, since about 2013. Um, and I teach a course on blockchain and the law. I teach a course on the law of money. And then I'm, it's weird because um, my, I also teach contracts and jurisprudence, which jurisprudence is philosophy of law. And at the beginning, I thought those were not related to my research area, but they absolutely are related. So it's it's fascinating to see how crypto has kind of gotten its tendrils into everything, basically. Yep, it has. Uh, it's certainly infected pretty much every aspect of my life. And for better or worse, you know, I think being part of the space makes you look at not just these new issues in the space, 
uh, from a particular lens, but I, I'm seeing everything about the world in a different light. Maybe it's maybe more of a skeptic about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. just, just being exposed to so many of the issues that uh, these new technologies have posed on our existing uh, legal stri- legal systems and legal structures. It's 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 a lot. Yeah, I love that. I love that, actually. It's really fun to get to go back and say, well, why do we do it that way? Do we have a good justification for um, our existing practices? And, um, you know, does does that justification still work today? So it's it's. The, the way one way um, my jurisprudence courses come into this actually is we read um, a really um, important piece called The Path of the Law by um, Justice Holmes. It was written way back in 1897, but it's um, super connected to this. And he uses this metaphor of he says uh, we're 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 being silly when we just decide our cases a certain way just because they were decided that way in the past. We need to take the dragon out of its cave and examine it, look at its claws, see if we want to slay it, see if we want to keep it. And I see crypto kind of um, asking us to take that dragon out in every domain, really, and re-ask the questions. Well, let's ask some of those questions. I I would say on this episode today, we have the opportunity. I doubt we'll get to any final answers, but um, I think there's probably nobody more qualified than you to sort of pose those questions, at least in the right way where we can get to something that that has the semblance of an answer or at least kind of tells us where we need to go in the space to make sure that uh, we're building for the future and not just sort of, you know, taking advantage of the past. Because one thing that we're very concerned about is how big can this space grow if we're not attacking these questions the right way, the concern is that we'll only ever change the world for tens of thousands of people. And we really want to change it for billions, if we can. And of course, for the better, I should I should make clear, uh, I, I do want these changes to be positive, net positive for most people around the world. Okay. So let's dive into your paper. I think I think you've set it up nicely. It's it's titled Deconstructing Decentralization, Exploring the Core Claim of Crypto Systems. Um, so it, it definitely gets right into this definition and, and the way that decentralization as a term is is kind of vague um, and, and not in a very beneficial way. So what? Let, let's start with like maybe um, not what the paper is about, but why you decided to write it. Like, why did you think that this is something that was so important to write about? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of my work has actually trying to hone, has been trying to hone in on what do these systems really do? What are they really like? And I have um, kind of been proceeding through trying to learn about specific ways that they are described and see if the words that we're using to describe them actually hold up, if if they actually work. So some words that I've looked at in the past are immutable. Um, I did a big analysis of that in in a prior paper. And again, you will not be surprised to hear that I don't think immutable is a good term for this. Mm-hmm. Others that I've uh, thought about, you know, are trustless. Um, and a lot of people have talked about how smart contracts is a, you know, kind of a, a problematic term because um, it brings in legal ideas that just are not necessarily necessary to bring in. Mm-hmm. But as far as decentralization, um, why did I write this paper is because it just, it it seemed to percolate up and be on everybody's lips. Like everybody is talking about 
decentralization, right? That is the term that people most associate, I would say, with the crypto space um, and what its goals are. And, you know, you've got countless conferences about decentralization. You've got uh, uh, people building DeFi, decentralized finance. Um, so we have to stop and think about what this term actually means um, since we're putting so much weight on it, I think. So that that led me to to want to um, take it apart. But it also um, another motivating factor for doing the paper right now was um, the speech that Bill Hinman gave, uh, Bill Hinman of the SEC gave back in June of last year, um, in which he talked about um, whether Ethereum was a security, whether Bitcoin was a security. And the decentralization level of these systems was something that he used to draw legal conclusions. And that was fascinating to me that uh, that he he picked up on that word and is even more fascinating because I just was like, do we even know what this means? Um, can we actually be using it to make legal decisions? Uh, is there enough agreement about what it is, what we're doing? That's largely why I did it, right? We don't know what this means. Everyone's talking about it, and now it's going to start having legal consequences, potentially. Well, how are we going to do that if nobody knows what it means? Well, I mean, how how would that happen? Like, tell me what happens if if in like, you know, the next few months we haven't figured this out. And now there's, you know, dozens of new kinds of crypto systems launching that are claiming they're decentralized in one fashion or another. Like, ultimately, like who would be making that determination about whether something is decentralized or not? Is it is it a court somewhere? Is it regulators? Is it legal scholars? Like who who is going to be making those determinations ultimately? Yeah. So I I. I want to kind of divide your question into a few different strands here. So, so there's 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 the strand that is focused on just um, what the SEC has said about um, about tokens on these systems and whether or not they're security. So there's the securities law analysis, and um, Hinman's speech suggested that the decentralization level of uh, the underlying blockchain was relevant to whether the token was a security. There's now been some additional guidance that's come out from the the SEC that doesn't actually use the terminology of sufficient decentralization and, and focuses um, a, a bit on other things. Their their analysis is definitely definitely connected, but um, not doesn't heavily focus on decentralization. So there's the securities law aspect, but then there's the aspect um, of using this idea in in other laws, right? So there. In, a, in the definition of a blockchain, okay, so some states, there's been a lot of state-level uh, legislation. Um, I have kind of considered it in some places to be kind of marketing uh, via legislation, meaning that the state is trying to indicate that it's um, open for business to uh, blockchain or crypto, um, crypto industry and, right, Look how much we we want you to come here. We've even passed laws that talk about your technology, right? Um, in those, in some of those laws, um, they're defining blockchain to um, to be characterized by its, you know, decent. But that is decentralized, right? And then nobody's defining what decentralized means. And what can end up happening, I think, is we can have a court um, ultimately potentially talking about this, you could have um, you could have there be a dispute that, you know, if if a blockchain system is getting a particularly a particular favorable legal status because it's a blockchain, then you might have a fight about, well, is it a blockchain? 
right? Because our definition says a blockchain is decentralized. Well, what does decentralized mean? Well, you could have that play out in front of a, a court, right? And a court uh, could end up, you know, coming up with some factors that say, okay, well, if it has X amount of nodes, it's decentralized, or if it has certain number of developers or whatever, it, uh, a court could end up deciding this. And I'm not sure that that's ideal for anybody, really. Maybe that's just the way that things end up working out. But um, I don't know if that's what we want. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to think of a scenario where I'm, I'm comfortable with um, ultimately people who are least familiar with the technology because they are incredibly familiar with the law. Mm-hmm. But that means that they haven't really had time to go hands on with a lot of this stuff. You know, it's taken me working full time in this space for quite a while now to start to wrap my head around some of these concepts. It, it's actually taken me 26 episodes of this podcast mm-hmm. to start wrapping my head around this concept. So I imagine it's not so straightforward to a court. Um, of but, course. But yeah. who's, who's the burden on eventually, do you think? Is is it going to be the burden on like a a project designer, a protocol designer to show that something is decentralized? Is the burden somehow on uh, like a plaintiff somewhere? Like, you know, like who has to show that something is decentralized? How could they demonstrate it? Like these are all such abstract questions to me, I guess, because the the terms are so loose. Right. Well, it would depend on the legal issue that actually is, is coming up. Right. Um, you know, it, it could be the case that someone is saying, well, you don't get this favorable treatment as a blockchain because you're not really a blockchain because, look, you're, you're totally centralized. Um, you're not decentralized. So it, it could be um, – and this would be really interesting, right? Um, it, it could be that the, the people associated with the, the, the blockchain would be trying to establish that they are decentralized. Well, that would be, that would be really kind of funny and interesting because who – who would be getting up there to make that claim, I guess, right? If the system is legitimately decentralized, who has the ability to get up and describe it, to be the voice, um, you know, on on the side of the decentralized blockchain, right? For yeah. Ethereum, would would they subpoena someone? Would they subpoena Vitalik? Would they subpoena Vlad? Would they subpoena the whole core devs team? Would they do? You know, subpoena oh, some no. miners? I don't know. This would be. It would and be they fascinating. have to have consensus on their a, testimony. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. We need to write a movie about this. Actually, that's that's my new script. Maybe, maybe idea. a short play. Yes. <laughs> Something short enough that it wouldn't yeah, be. So it sounds like it, a comedy, really. Well, yes. <laughs> to the people in the crypto space, comedy tragedy, I think. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, but I don't know if anyone outside of it would get it. But um, I, I bet we could still pack the room. <laughs> Uh, but, but to take that point up, you're right. Like it it is sort of a catch 22. We're claiming decentralized systems and then we're asking them to somehow have centralized voices. And I find that even within the space, when we're touting the decentralized nature of a protocol or a project, uh, a lot of the people are still, you know, they're asking for a central voice who can speak on behalf of the project to be like, this is where it's going. This is how it's being designed. They, they kind of want to see that. Uh, philosopher king figure emerge. Yes. And I I don't find that to be particularly healthy, but I also find it to be particularly human Mm -hmm. uh, to want that. So is is there is there any sort of resolution to that paradox in your mind that even with these decentralized systems, we expect there to somehow be uh, a central voice that can speak either in its defense or or perhaps against it? Yeah, I to be honest, um, at in my gut, 
I don't think you end up getting around that problem. I think there's always going to be people um, being the voice and uh, guiding the rest. I mean, I haven't looked at it too much, but I know there's something going on with MakerDAO at the moment and a, um, a vulnerability. And there's a big discussion going on on Twitter about, um, you know, did they – how much influence does this central group have in, you know, encouraging, urging, and the terminology that you use there is 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 quite significant, right? Um, forcing, like, where are the boundaries here? And it's coming from a place, and a that that central place is telling you there is a problem. You need to do something about it if you don't want to be harmed in a particular way. So I think people have to have someone to trust, um, and this this discussion has been ongoing in a lot of different um, forums. Um, so after I did a, a podcast with uh, Peter McCormack about this topic, um, uh, James, I believe his name is James O'Byrne, um, who's a uh, one of the core devs or an important dev uh, for Bitcoin, um, did a podcast with Stephen Levera. This is the world of podcasts, right? And um, it was kind of... Uh, thinking about these issues of centralization and power. And um, one of the interesting things that he talked about in the podcast was a thought experiment in which, um, you know, he was he was wondering, you know, could there be a team of shadow core devs who were unknown to everybody um, until just one one day they came out with their proposal and uh, said, look, we think it's better to go X direction, and this is Y for the protocol. And he thought that everyone would, at that point, if it was legitimately better, just switch over to this completely new set of previously unknown uh, core devs and say, kick the, the existing core devs out and go with them. They've got better ideas. That may be true, but I think what's really interesting is to imagine what would happen there in um, in a state of crisis, right? If this team of shadow core devs came up and said, this is a critical flaw and we are going directly to the miners and telling them they have to run our software and it has to be now or the system will collapse, right? I think the miners would look to the people that they know as existing core devs and not trust these anonymous nobodies who have no track record, right? I think they'd go to the people that they know and trust and ask them, well, would, are, are you vet, are you, you know, are you comfortable with this? What do you think about it, right? There's always going to be like, with with matters like these where there's great expertise involved and um, really high stakes matters, I just I feel like you just can't get away from it. Ultimately, like random people can't just pop up with solutions all the time because no one will trust them, especially when there's when there's a time constraint, when there's unlimited time. I think that can happen. But when there's a time constraint, that's where you really can see who trusts who. Yeah, and, and now you're going back to what you've been saying about, you know, this is not the only nebulous term, decentralization, right? But also this idea of trustless mm -hmm. technologies. And I, I agree with what you're saying that, you know, there's always an element of trust in these systems because they're human systems. Humans are are playing uh, – they are actors within the system. They're operating entities or operating nodes you know, within these systems. And humans – trust is a very human – thing where I think the decentralization space is actually differentiated is on choice. Mm -hmm. And it's something that has also come up a lot on this podcast. Um, we had uh, Josh Cincinnati from the Zcash Foundation come on. We talked a little bit about this. It's like, how much is 
privacy, how much is decentralization around these ideas of, you know, choice of whom you can trust or who needs to trust you. And in the in the case that you're talking about, you know, you have the choice of which group of devs you're placing that trust in. And it's built over time. The idea, though, is that you can choose whom you can trust. And with a lot of centralized systems, you know, if you're trapped in the in the sprawling Facebook ecosystem of applications, there was not really this element of choice. And there really wasn't uh, as much transparency or disclosure. And that's kind of how we ended up where we are now. So I do still see a lot of improvements that are possible with decentralized technologies. But what I'll ask you is, how do we, you know, how do we choose the right terms so people don't think of these systems as like trustless in the way that they might think like, oh, I'll never have to trust anybody again, Mm -hmm. but trustless in the way that it maybe comes across in practice, which is that you have more choice over where you place your trust within the context of these systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've seen other terms uh, floating around like trust minimized. Mm. Um, again, I have kind of an issue potentially with that because I'm, I just, I'm, I'm, I tend to see them more as trust shifting or, um, well, maybe you could get that choice element in there. Like, uh, you pick your, pick your poison or pick your, <laughs> I don't know if I'd call poison. it that. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's avoid poison. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I'm teasing you. Um, pick your, uh, pick your fiduciary, um, I I don't know. I'm supposed to be a marketer. You'd think. Yeah, yeah. I know. And I somehow know. when we're on the spot, like you said, given infinite time, maybe I can give you a good term here. But, you know, we've got a 45 minute podcast. We're doing what we can. I'll, I'll, I'll work on this. And I'll, I'll tweet you. it at you. I yeah. Oh, I look forward to that. Or, or write a whole paper, you know, since you have so much time. Yeah. No, it's 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 really interesting. So what are some other nebulous terms? Um, maybe just one more where it's like we've got decentralization, we've got trustless. What do you all, what else do you think is like a particularly problematic term that that's being overused or misused within the space? Um, well, I think uh, I think core devs is actually kind of amorphous hmm. to me um, because, uh, you know, it. Whenever I use the term, I'm I'm kind of told that I'm using it wrong. Um, so who is in this group? Well, arguably anyone who makes a contribution. And um, I just eh, are are core devs the people who have the the passwords that let them actually commit stuff, or is it a broader group? So there seems to be a lack of consensus about that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> consensus, right? Right. Um, let's see uh, other terms that I'm um, uncomfortable with. Well. I'm. Uh, I had a, an interesting discussion on Twitter the other day um, about you know what we're calling the the parties that actually produce the record. So Bitcoin, they're called miners, right? And mm-hmm. um, some people are calling them validators. Um, I think in Tezos are called bakers, right? Yes, they are. Um, so there's there's a variety of terms here, and um, I, I think in part this is due to us figuring out what those parties are actually going to do, right? What's in their remit? What do they have discretion over? What do they have judgment? What can they make judgments about? What are they actually doing? So I think the term is still to emerge. Um, I think miners is – I understand why it was chosen at the beginning, but um, I think it 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 direct it, – it's kind of misdirecting attention. Um, it it – acts as if, um, you know, people are just doing these, uh, having their computer do these computations for fun with the hope that, you know, new Bitcoins pop up. 
and I, I, I think that's um, an incomplete picture at best. So um, my current understanding of, you know, the way to view them is as really transaction processors um, and at kind of writers of this record. Um, so the discussion on Twitter the other day was about, well, are they archivists? Are they historians? Are they writers? And the, the pushback that I got in talking about these terms was that that, you know, has too much uh, focuses too much on discretion or um, acts as if they can con uh, control too much about what the text is of the record. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of still figuring figuring that out. So um, the the additional research that keeps coming out on the computer science side, like um, the paper from uh, Cornell Tech that came out, Phil Dian's paper about, you know, potential chances for front running um, and on uh, decentralized exchanges and yep. how that interacts with the, the underlying consensus process and how miners can play a role in that, right? Just calling them miners, I, I really think it's just... Um, it hides that discretion and I'm working on it. The paper that I'm working <laughs> on right now is about thinking of miners as intermediaries. And I think um, uh, just even that shift in terminology, viewing them as an intermediary in the process, like you don't get your transaction onto a blockchain unless it goes through a certain group of, of, of parties. And it's not just any, it's not just that it's passed around all the nodes. It has to go through a certain set, right. And go through a certain process. So, um, I understand that the network is peer-to-peer, -peer, but your transaction is not actually peer-to-peer. -peer. It's going through a party to get to a record, uh, to get onto the record, and then the transaction is legit, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that has a lot of implications. Anyway. I, I have to agree, and you might be interested in the in the last episode that I recorded was with Jake Brookman from CoinFund, and he was talking about this term he likes to use of generalized mining, mm -hmm. which is now – you know, this idea that a an entity or a group of individuals can have influence over all aspects of a, of a project ecosystem or a protocol and, you know, whether they're validating transactions within the network, but also, you know, whether they're developing applications on that protocol, like all the different ways in which you can support that ecosystem as a single, you know, party, mm -hmm. all of those relationships you would have to the protocol, like you're performing all these different actions. Maybe you are an archivist and a historian at the same time that you are, you know, solving math problems at mm -hmm. the same time as you are an investor. Mm -hmm. Or like uh, maybe it's a security token at this point and you're you're an actual like regulated stakeholder. I, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I, th I think um, part of the part of what I'm going to be or I'm in the process of writing the paper, but part part of it asks us to, you know, try to get away from these existing divisions and categories that we have and just look at what are the actual activities that are being performed here. And maybe we want to try and think about how we want to treat each activity um, rather than just saying, okay, they're a miner. We know what to do with miners, but let's tease out a little bit more what they're actually doing. And I feel like we haven't adequately uh, thought through uh, what we would expect of um, miners in the context of, you know, significant software upgrades, right? Or emergency software upgrades, like with the the recent Bitcoin bug, right? When um, when the the core devs, the small group of core devs, right, contacted specific miner miners who had, you know, control over. Um, 
big amounts of hashing power. They called them and said, okay, you got to, you got to push this upgrade. And I may not be quite using the right terminology here. I think that's right. But, you know, you got to um, adopt this software upgrade. We have a, we have a bug that we need to take care of now. Right. And my understanding is that they just did it. And do we expect them to just take the word of those people or do we expect them to actually go and vet the software and think about, you know, is this a good thing for the network, right? What are our expectations? What are expectations of miners in the context of um, how well they need to protect themselves, right? Um, if, if you know, we have uh, mining pools and, um, you know, with significant parts of the hash power, do we need um, to think about what kind of uh, cybersecurity practices they have if, you know, a, a big chunk of hash power could be knocked off at once for 51% attack pur purposes? Do we have expectations of having a minimum level of cybersecurity, um, you know, protection? So I, I feel like we need to think about what all they're doing and then think about, well, what do we want them to do about that practice? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think focusing on actions is is hugely valuable when, you know, especially when now we're getting to the point where more about these ecosystems is observable. You know, there wasn't really any activity before, but now there is, you know, there's things that we can observe. So, for example, you know, you mentioned the front running paper, like you can sort of observe some of what's happening right now. It's something we're working on at Enigma. It's like, how do we solve this front running problem, you know, using privacy solutions? You know, how do we mm -hmm. make a fairer environment? Another thing that we're working on and, and something that I'd like your perspective on is this issue of governance, mm -hmm. um, which also, you know, you want to have these aspects of private voting, secure voting, et cetera. But that's not the biggest problem even with governance. I see so many issues with on-chain governance, some of which are being experienced right now, including like participation rates and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I imagine there's also some legal issues and some legal concerns with the governance problem <laughs> with public blockchain. So what's it, it's sort of open ended here. But what what's your perspective on governance with public blockchains? Mostly like, mm -hmm. can it work? Yeah. So um, my perspective on it right now is um, it's experimental. It's unproven and it's highly problematic um, if you're going to want to use these systems for anything of social importance. Um, and, you know, things that I would consider to be of social importance are money, finance, um, infrastructure for voting or, you know, other things that if they fall apart, it has a significant impact on society. It could lead to people, large numbers of people losing, um, losing resources. It could lead to social unrest. Though, like if if an election uh, is is in question because the underlying right governance of the the blockchain system um, was, you know, fails or is sketchy in some way, right? That can we we know what questions around elections. <laughs> can do. We're seeing that oh, play yeah. out right for the last number of years, even here in the US. So um, I. OK, so I I am appreciative of all the different experimental um, the things that we're seeing in around blockchain governance. Um, I I still am a subscriber to um, what. So, so there's a scholar at Oxford, um, Vili uh, Leiden Birta who um, he's an economic sociologist. And it's it's weird because um, whenever I read his papers, I wonder if we kind of have the same mind um, because <laughs> we see we see things kind of um, in a very similar way. So my um, 
my gut feeling from the beginning has been, you know, like something that is special about these systems is its messy governance and um, like just this kind of uh, bringing the the governance practices from grassroots open source software to these systems, right? Right. And um, that's kind of what makes them special and innovative. Of course, it also makes them, from my perspective, highly risky for anything of social importance and thus unusable. So you can use them in, you know, if you just want to pass uh, tokens back and forth amongst a small group of people. But once you get to big groups of people, it's I think they're just not not trustworthy enough. He has termed this um, the blockchain like governance paradox. And um, it, it basically says that once you try to put more formal governance into these systems, you lose their specialness. So they're they, they, there's kind of this circle there, right? You can't use them because they're too risky for important things with the messy governance, mm-hmm. but you lose the specialness once you make it not messy. This is this is something I think a ton about mm-hmm. from a slightly different perspective. It's a lot of it is like on the community management side too. It's like mm-hmm. once a community, you know, reaches a, a certain size and, and it still wants to achieve a collective goal, you know, there's going to have to be some more formal structure about how that gets done. But by adding that formal structure, you know, are you now limiting the growth of that community? Yeah. Like I, I, it, it's just because I think this is just so human. Mm-hmm. And whether the unit that we're talking about is like a minor or, you know, for whatever that term is worth, or if that unit is like a community member or a core dev, you know, it's it's all the same. It's like as soon as it really also depends who's putting time into the system. Maybe if we're talking about observable actions, it's like who's investing the most time in these systems? Mm-hmm. Who who has the loudest voice in the right communication channels? What are the official communication yeah. channels? If there's a yeah. core dev who's the loudest but is pushing the least code, you know, this this plays out on Twitter and governance issues all the time. Yes. What happens if somebody doesn't have the most voting power in a decentralized system, but they have the most Twitter followers and can influence the most other voters? Mm-hmm. What happens when you allow for proxy voting? You know, it's mm-hmm. it all feeds back on itself. I, I think, as as you said, it is a very messy issue. You're not the only blockchain skeptic I've had on this show, by the way. We, we did okay. a, we did an episode previously with Bruce Schneier. Mm hmm. Awesome. Um, I think he goes well beyond some of the concerns that you have, because at least you voiced an appreciation for some of this uh, experimentation. And I've since read some of Bruce's articles where he rejects the idea that blockchains should be used for anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to ask you to put on a, um, a maybe an uncomfortable hat for just a moment and say, uh, I- I'm telling you that you're slightly less skeptical than Bruce. So in which ways do you think your lack of skepticism actually manifests? Like, where do you actually see the potential emerging? Like, you're talking about the specialness. I don't want the specialness to just be that it's cool and messy. There's got to be something else here. Okay. What is it? All right. So um, I'm cautious about rejecting all of this outright um, because I also see significant flaws in our existing systems. Right. So I I can't say that I necessarily know that our existing systems like as finance works today is some sort of perfect system. And, you know, we should just leave it as it is. And great, because the the 
the things that are driving the creation of these crypto systems and a you know desire to have a different kind of financial system, they're real legitimate concerns with our existing system and and how power works in in the existing system and how people take advantage of things and you know where the fraud is and, and all that. So I I think sometimes people get the idea that I am a staunch defender of the existing way of doing things. Um, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> what I, I do want us to do, though, is to ask really hard questions as we are, as people are building a new system and to recognize where, um, where things are messy, where there is potentially power and, and ask questions about, am I actually doing this in a way that's better than what has been done before? Or am I uh, just shifting who I'm giving that power to or uh, shifting the particular party who is going to be committing the fraud, right? But it's still going to, still going to be there. Um, I also, um, I, I also um, am really interested in forms that money can take and um and the fact that you know state monies do collapse and um and you know i see this as in part as a way of people trying to solve this fundamental problem of how do you preserve resources and value for the future how can people protect themselves in that way and um it kind of makes sense to me that in a world where we have um, a lot of doubt and uncertainty about big existing institutions like the EU, like even the US, um, that people are, in a sense, kind of hedging their bets here, right? I, I want to have an alternative um, that when, you know, the shit hits the fan, excuse me, um, <laughs> I have, I, I can still have something, right? I can still take care of myself. I can still take care of my family. Um, so, uh, I, I don't, I, I feel like, um, many economists, uh, critique these, uh, and reject them out of hand because, you know, they're, they're kind of defending like the, like we know how to do things in our existing financial system. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not where my critique is coming from. Uh, I, I would say. I think that's a very healthy perspective to ha to have. And that goes back to what we said about just being a skeptic, period. It's like always looking for a better way, regardless of where we came from. So given that there's so much that we just really don't know that we're still figuring out where there's so much disagreement over like, OK, what does this mean? What does this mean? There, there was a tweet of yours. Uh, I think it's even from yesterday, so I have to just oh, ask about it. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but I, but it was a good one to ask because you – and I'll read it word for word. You said, is it okay to learn in public or do you have to act like you know everything after a certain point and do all your learning in private? And I'm finding that in this space, everything is moving so fast that we're all learning something new every day because it wasn't something that anybody knew yesterday. So I couldn't have known it. Because we just found out yesterday. And if I had pretended that I somehow knew it for years, you know, that makes me a liar. And I would rather, you know, I, this is my perspective, right? I have to be honest about this stuff all the time because, as you said, this is really not a trustless space. And if you start telling people you know things that you don't, you you build a very brittle trust as soon as they find out that that's 
just not so. Uh, and trust takes a lifetime to build and minutes to destroy. So my perspective on that tweet is that you should always be learning and be public around that process. But I'm curious what what made you what made you ask that, and how can we do a better job specifically in this space of making learning as well as teaching like a lot more accessible to more people? It was kind of a you know a, a thought that came to me during my commute because it's kind of I feel like what's underlying a lot of the discussions that I have on Twitter. Um, I feel like um, over time. Um, as I've you know gotten some more followers and um, speaking in different places, right? That okay, well maybe am I perceived to have a certain amount of expertise, and is my expertise in certain areas, and how do I clarify what my expertise is? And then when I get out and on Twitter and ask certain questions, um, often I I you know there's some ugly things that are said about you're stupid and you don't know anything, and who are you to suggest such a thing? So. Um, I mean, I think this is the the underlying question, right? Can we learn out there? Can we learn on Twitter? I mean, it exposes everything, right? And I, I think there's really good things about that and really bad things about that. And I, I think that um, this this question that I asked is is connected in in many ways to like the the larger debate we're having in the political sphere about um, you know and and politicians who take you know, you take one position uh, at a certain point in your career, and then are you allowed to change your mind, right? Because you learn something new, or you you have a new perspective on things. And I think it's really a shame if we are not allowed to learn new things in public and, and change our minds. And I think everyone learns together if, if we have uh, discussions out in public. So what I would say is that I hope that we can continue to have civil professional discussions on Twitter and in every other forum. And there are many people who I, you know, strongly disagree with that I consider my friends and um, laugh with. And um, so I, I value that greatly. And um, I'm hoping that that can continue. You had me right up until you said civil discussions on Twitter. (laughs) But no, but I but I do agree with you. And I and I guess, you know, even those conversations need facilitators and I and I try to be one. And it's hard on Twitter because just, you know, when it's the same issue, right, as we talked with the governance problem, like whose job is it on Twitter to police the conversation to structure it so that it's useful for people rather than a screaming match and who endows that person with that power like who is the the twitter arbiter who is the yeah who adjudicates the conversation and who says when someone has won and who says when the conversation's gotten way out of hand it's like i i think that we're going to keep running into these it's almost like a fractal like the same issues are all over the space whether it's the conversations we're having or the governance design or the design of the protocols themselves and and how computations are sharded in the network like mm-hmm. everywhere i look in the decentralization space i see the same challenges manifesting across like similar entities but with like different actions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i i really value the work that you're doing because i think what you're at least giving us is a common language and as if we're all speaking the same language and not talking past each other, then I have a lot more faith that these conversations are going to happen, you know, in good faith and that we will learn from each other instead of talk past each other. And I'm very excited to see the work that you continue to do to hammer out this terminology for us, help us at least come from a common place of understanding of basic terms 
so that, you know, when we have these conversations, we know what a core dev is. We know what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And uh, can't Thank wait you. for the next paper. Can't, can't wait to so see much. what happens next. I appreciate next. that. <laughs> Thank so you. So if people want to keep track of your work, if people want to keep track of your tweets, you know, I, I, I hesitate to ask you to. <laughs> to get more people to follow you on Twitter, because I know that it's as much of a blessing as it is a curse sometimes. But I'm giving you the opportunity. Okay. Uh, where, right. where can people follow your work or yes. um, is there anywhere else that they should be uh, keeping track of what you're talking about, thinking about? Sure. So um, Twitter is a good place to find me. It's um, Angela underscore Walsh, W-A-L-C-H. And you can also follow my work um, at my website, AngelaWalch.com. And there I have links to all of my, my papers and, you know, media and podcasts and um, various, oh, teaching materials too. So Excellent. Well, I will add links to all these things into the podcast description so that people can continue down the rabbit hole that you've started us down. Obviously, there is no bottom, uh, but that's also very exciting to think that, you know, a group of people out there somewhere is we're eventually going to get to a better answer, if not the right answer mm-hmm. to, to some of these big questions. And uh, I thank you again for sharing your perspective on the whole conversation and providing, I think, some very good structure to the right questions. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 